it is keeping that this hymn should be the very first in our hymnal. And I think that it, it forms a threshold blessing as we open that hymnal, as we step across that threshold into a spiritual life that we share together. And all the hopes and prayers and blessings that we contain with us and that we yearn for should be held within the, the words and the harmonies of this song. This is a song that the Bria College faculty also sing at the start of the school year. And I've been at faculty convocation uh, twice and was so surprised and so powerfully moved um, that I couldn't sing at all the first time and just just wept. Um, it was a time of very great uncertainty as we uh, did not know what would happen to our DACA students and um, were full of uh, foreboding and worries and questions, but also a very great strength and resolution. And I think that this is a hope and a resolution that we carry with us into whatever larger communities that we form a part of, whether they are schools, whether they are other institutions, whether they are our families or our civic communities, is to make these walls strong enough to keep hate out and let love in. It's also a threshold song that um, my husband and I asked our guests to sing at our wedding uh, because it was a very new threshold for both of us, and I'm, I'm all for clumped all of a sudden. Um, as we began to weave together the two communities out of which we came and the two very different families out of which we came, two different religious traditions, um, and sought both blessing and through that union to bless. Now we're at this time of New Year that still feels fairly new, right? Uh, for those of us who are um, recalcitrant uh, New Year's resolution makers, perhaps we have felt that we were well on our way towards achieving those goals or began to despair that the New Year was now suddenly behind us and why do I ever do this to myself? I just make myself miserable and so on. But I think it's worth remembering that uh, this particular date of newness and all the attachments that we stick to it are really very arbitrary. It doesn't matter when you begin again. And it doesn't matter that that first or second or third or tenth or thirteenth try um, may have fallen short of expectations that you alone put on yourself but it does matter how we begin again. I've thought a great deal about what it means to begin again in community as well as individuals or as pairs or as families, however those are constituted. 
and the ways in which we mark time, right? We have our liturgical year in community uh, here in this place. For instance, our year, our church year, begins with the water communion in the fall, in gathering. And in the late spring, early summer, we have flower communion. And there's a whole lot of what may feel like ordinary time in between those two. These are these interesting goalposts in this year. And Christmas happens in between for those who observe Christmas, or it's solstices, equinoxes, so many sacred moments, so many ordinary moments that become sacred by the way that we handle them, by the way that we hold them. What does it mean when we say we want to begin again? Is it the same as starting over? I don't think that it is. I don't think that beginning again wipes away the past. But I think that it can, when done with great intention and compassion, free us from particular bonds to the past. Sometimes our desire to control the chaos in our lives um, leads us to really become very entrenched in family roles, in patterns of behavior, in places, in jobs, in geographic locations, um, in ways in which we choose not to engage, to disengage. And it is much harder to liberate ourselves from the, the very well, well-traveled paths of our lives in very deep ruts where our wagon wheels have been. We don't erase those paths. Um, I don't think that we need to. I think that there's a lot of energy tied up in that desire to erase, particularly where we as individuals or as community members may feel shame or lamentation or hurt or guilt. I think that there's a very deep desire to make things better by moving on, by kind of cutting and running, by erasing. And I don't think that that actually uh, ferments the kind of transformation that we're looking to. Beginning again towards that purpose of transformation, right? Change in itself is not enough because change is happening all the time, whether we want it to or not. And so much of our anxiety is tied up in resisting change, in resisting changes within us, in resisting changes put placed on us, in resisting change that we anticipate that hasn't even come yet. And this keeps us stuck and it keeps us grasping, sometimes in ways we don't even know we are, right? You've heard that expression, you know, choosing the devil that you know rather than the devil that you don't know. Uh, We do it again and again and again. 
out of out of fear, out of a, a, a absence of courage, out of scarcity. We pay a very great deal of attention these days to resilience, which is necessary, which we must cultivate in ourselves, in our youth, in ourselves, in our families and communities. But resilience is not enough. Adaptation is not enough. And to promise again, to renew covenant again, is not enough. Transformation is of itself, not even its own end. So, what are we doing all this for? I think that the purpose of all this transformation is not to somehow and magically lift us out of the things that cause us pain or worry or fear, but to alter our ways of engaging them and engaging each other so that we can live with less anxiety into the paradox of living together, that we simultaneously crave change and fear it, that we, we, we want to be transformed and we don't want anybody else to do any of that transforming to us. Right? There is transformation that we accomplish, and there is transformation that occurs without our having anything to do with it, as anyone who has survived puberty knows. (laughs) I've lately been reading this remarkable book called Promising Again, um, which is a very unassuming little book on pastoral theology, which looks incredibly dull when you pick it up. It's blue, and it has two circles interlocked on it. Um, But it's by some rather extraordinary people um, whose names likely will mean very little to most of us here. Herbert Anderson, Marie McCarthy, David Hogue. But this book, which really focuses at renewing the covenants and bonds and shared visions of relationship, particularly uh, intimate relationships, is very much focused on the social aspect as well as the personal aspect of that transformation. When we, if we, partner with someone, there can be this really intense desire that this, I want to hold on to this moment forever this moment where I feel like I finally come home or I'm at my best or this is the summation of all things longed for. And these are moments we might experience throughout our lives, right? The birth of a child or the accomplishment of many decades of important and uh, valuable work. But both the individuals and families are unique in being both form and spirit. So you never have just this one thing. You have you and me, and there's this thing in between us. 
And all of these things have very different directions. They have different spirits. They have different visions. And it's when we fail to find a vision that we share together that we begin to fragment. Which is not to say that we, shouldn't dis- that we should just despair about not sharing that vision. But it means that we turn toward each other in these acts of transformation in order to understand what that vision is, what it is becoming. How do we see differently? How do we learn to see and to act and to love transformatively? So these, these authors reflect that transformation does not presume resolution of the paradoxical nature of living, right? We never stop change from happening, and we never resolve that paradox. But how do we embrace that paradox? A change will never be predictable. Change will always be herky-jerky, and it never comes at a convenient time. I've noticed And I've noticed that the summation of things long hoped for often come with fascinating little side trips. Like, I lived in a long-term partnership in my 20s and 30s when I thought I knew all about what living together was like. And then I got married in my 40s, which is totally different. And every day is an adventure in, oh, I didn't know that that was your vision. Oh, you didn't know that this was my vision. Oh, Why are you so upset that I painted the walls while you were gone and I moved all the furniture? (laughs) Of course I did it while you were gone. It was the only time I had the place to myself. They actually give an example of a couple where the husband just grew to accept with very great humor that it was his wife's thing to keep moving the living room furniture around, that he just never knew on any given day what it would look like when he came home. And he said, and, and it sort of started happening with greater and greater frequency. And he was just like, oh, I just, I just don't even. And then he came home one day, and all the furniture was gone. And so was his wife. And so there was this metaphor right there in the living room that um, he accepted, this is just this thing without inquiring into its deeper meaning. And whether she realized it or not, she was trying to affect change. Something was not working. So she was trying to move these pieces around, and those pieces were the pieces of their marriage. But she was also doing it alone. And he was looking on with acceptance of what he saw as the moving pieces without participating in engaging what was really happening. And I think that this constitutes a very deep metaphor for how we may look on the world around us as individuals, as families, as communities. We come so often to accept or to tolerate things that we don't comprehend or understand, and we think sometimes out of love, and then get blindsided. And suddenly we come home to our metaphorical home, and there's no furniture and no partner, and the house is empty. Mm. 
they remarked that this emptiness formed this desert space for this husband. And there really wasn't a follow-up on the wife, which I found profoundly dissatisfactory. I wanted to know where all the furniture went. (laughs) Perhaps because I was the guilty person who moved all the furniture around. Um, I saw in that story, in myself, this struggle to gain some kind of real estate in my new life as a not quite newly married person, but as a person married just over a year, trying to figure this new thing out and new relationships to each other's communities and so on. And it was me moving into a house that my partner had been in for 10 years that didn't feel like mine, even after a year. And I just, in my own defense, want to say I had paint samples on the wall for a month which he looked at and said, yes, they're all great. And then I did something really unexpected with all of them. We got into a huge fight about this bedroom because, to me, it seemed because he didn't have control over it. To him, he came home and everything had been dismantled. Without his involvement, I somehow forgot to tell him I was going to move all the furniture, including his stuff and my stuff. But he was upset that he had been left out of the creative process. And this didn't really get resolved until I said, what would you like to do with these two walls? So that it became an hour space. Which wasn't truly satisfactory to either of us, but became more harmonious as time went on. It became a compromise, and then it became a shared vision, which in my struggle to gain purchase, I did deliberately choose a time to leave my husband out of a creative process that he looked forward to. It was truly... Sorry for hurting his feelings. Not truly sorry that I did the project. But it was an important learning opportunity for us because it brought us to this really interesting collision of vision. Vision of home. Vision of refuge. Vision of what do we want this most intimate space of our shared life together to be like. Which brought everything up to the surface, right? Two people in midlife moving in together have a lot of baggage in a lot of ways. We as individuals, starting over again in any place, bring a lot of baggage with us. But it's what do we do in terms of sorting through and shedding that and deciding what has purpose and what has served its purpose and what needs to be thanked and released is the work of transformation together. Anderson et al. say that the future of a family is as important as its past. And here is where sharing that vision with our children, with our elders, 
with all those who constitute part of our families, however we choose them and however we form them, remains critical. The future of this faith family involves all of our visions combined, involves all of us leaning into each other and into saying the yes and into not just listening but hearing, not just understanding but comprehending not only our fears but where we see ourselves, where we want to be, how we want to love. How do we want to love is perhaps one of the greatest questions that we can hold as a community of faith and as citizens of the world. As we continue this exciting uh, journey into possibility throughout January, as we look towards Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and as we turn to the inspiration and ongoing challenge of the civil rights movement, which is not a thing of the past, but is in fact ongoing and alive and compelling and will remain so, will remain so. We have the opportunity to look at these ways for how this transformation will reshape our past without rejecting it, to discern these much deeper metaphors of moving our furniture or getting rid of them entirely, of how to make that shared space together that feels welcoming and loving and safe and inviting for all, and how to live into the mystery and the paradox of change together. <laughs>